Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy, and I'm Sydney McElroy. I don't know why my um, introduction had the Doppler effect. That's a that's a new one for me. Oh, like it was like rising action. I guess it. Then. Yeah, just trying some different stuff. Just, just trying, trying to keep it fresh. Trying to keep it fresh, but oh, although it, it's funny that we would try to keep it fresh with this because this is one of my favorite tried and true Sawbones standards. The question and answer episode. Well, but it's a way that I, I think our listeners keep our program fresh mm. with their questions, with their fresh hot questions <laughs> straight from the, the tap, brain oven. The, the brain oven. <laughs> Interesting. Kind I don't of a know. ghoulish way of putting that, but okay. Sorry about that. That wasn't some of my best work. No, I'm. Uh, but you will do your best work now. I feel it in my bones. I will it, try very hard. Yeah. You send us your questions. Um, about medicine, as always, these are not, this is not any sort of medical advice that I'm about to offer you. It is just some fun, sciencey facts. Yep. If you actually have a question about your human body and you have concerns about how your own health and safety, please go ask your own healthcare provider and not me, a podcaster who is a doctor. Yes. But a in this in this context, right? The podcaster. Yeah. Here's our first question: Does wearing lip gloss or chapstick make me catch more germs? So before you laugh, when you drop a piece of toast butter side down, uh, it will. Uh, they actually say jam side down, but yeah, I, I think it's just musical. Oh, okay. Has ingrained butter side anyway. It will pick up visibly more gross stuff than if you dropped it dry side down. Is it the same for my lips? If they're wet, will more germs stick to them? Thanks. Love the show, Erin. You know, so I when I first saw this question, I thought, probably not. But then that's not a great answer in science. Probably not. That's never what you want to hear. Uh, I couldn't find any studies that actually tested this exact question. Like, you know, I mean, what you'd need to do right to set this up properly is have a group of people who are wearing chapstick regularly. And you'd have to like standardize it, what kind of chapstick, how much they're applying, how often they're reapplying, right. all that kind of stuff. And a group of people who never wear lip gloss or chapstick ever. And you have do, to then like chart well. illnesses or you, or maybe like culture their lips periodically yeah. and like grow the on a petri dish. You know what I mean? Like you'd yeah. have to come up with some way to figure this out. And it doesn't seem like someone has done that particular study. Um, but if you are interested, that would be cool. What I did find looking into this is a good reminder, I think, generally, that uh, any sort of, like, makeup 
type product, chapstick, lipstick, or anything that you're going to apply to your face regularly, you do want to, uh, one, make sure that you're keeping it clean, storing it properly, handling it properly, um, and two, not sharing especially mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. I, I found that a lot, a lot of articles reminding people like don't share chapstick, which I guess I hadn't really considered because I mean, pandemic, Yeah, don't share food and drink, don't, yeah, but yeah, that is definitely a higher risk, I think, for catching germs, sharing those I sorts think, of products. Okay, listen, I'm just going to put it out there. I think that if it will stick to the chapstick, thereby prohibiting you from sharing the with other people, it stands to reason that it would stick to the chapstick on your lips. Well, I think what I did find is that if you're reusing these products and not storing them well, like keeping them with lids off or caps off or that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, obviously they're open to contamination and right. they could get germs on them, which you are then are applying to your face, which is why it is recommended that not only do you store these types of things the w- right way, but you routinely get fresh products and not, right. like me, buy some, you know drugstore makeup when you're in high school and just assume you can keep it for the next two decades <laughs> until your siblings throw it away in horror. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up, this question. Uh, my question, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with shingles and it was located in one of my eyes. It was a really unpleasant experience. And I have, wow, I said that so bad. It was a really unpleasant experience. And I have some residual nerve pain that will occasionally flare up. I know that you can get shingles again, but I'd like to know if once you get it, would a second case happen in the same location or could it be somewhere else uh, on your body? Also, maybe too many questions, but I was in my 30s when I got it and had many friends tell me you're too young to have shingles. I also heard from several people my age that say they also had shingles, some of whom were very young. Is it a myth that shingles more commonly affects you as you get older or something that's getting more common for people to have a younger age? Thank you, Bonnie. So it the first part of the question, um, you can have shingles again. Like once you've had shingles one time, the virus, it's the same uh, virus as the chickenpox virus it just lays dormant and then the disease presentation is different does that make sense same virus but what you get is different yes um shingles can definitely come out again it usually happens in a different location though so if that is if that is of some comfort um it is less common that it would continually recur in the same place it is more common that it will just pop up in another what we call dermatome or like nerve distribution the area of a nerve. Okay. They're very specific patterns. It's why you know, for instance, shingles never crosses the midline. That's something that... Generally speaking, because it your nerves don't... Like, they start in your spine and wrap around your body in certain patterns, and then they stop right at the midline. So generally speaking, if, if it crosses the midline, it can never be shingles. Obviously, there then are always rare it? exceptions. Well, no, I mean, it's something else. Then it's it a different rash. something new. <laughs> then it's something, something different. No, but then the second question, in terms of, like, age distribution... Obviously, yes, as you have demonstrated, young people can get shingles, but it is much more common as we get older, especially like in the um, over 85 group, shingles can be incredibly common. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is definitely something that is more common in older people. But yeah, it definitely happens in younger adults as well. Our next question. They don't stop, Sydney. Our listeners' curiosity will not be slaked. Do people still say that? Say that slaked. 
catharsis. Like you do. Hi, Justin and Sydney. You may have already talked about this in a past episode. I missed, but my wellness friends are always talking about adaptogens. What even are adaptogens? Are they definitely just a made-up term to sell health foods? Thanks, Danica. So I wonder about this too because there is a cereal brand that I enjoy that is like an indie cereal brand, and they advertise their adaptogens. So what's up mm-hmm. with adaptogens? I drank a product today that I did not bring into the house that had adaptogens on the label. Mm-hmm. You don't need to act all brassy about it. You did consume it with your human body. So it was you're needed. It had, uh, it had another ingredient called caffeine. <laughs> that is not an adaptogen. <laughs> that was not an adaptogen. Uh, I know exactly what it does. I know all the risks and benefits that I did put it in my human body again. But uh, the adaptogen. So first of all, this word comes from 1947, uh, a a Russian uh, Soviet scientist, Envy Lazarev. uh, Dr. Lazarev did some various, like, experiments in the area of toxicology and made some some breakthroughs and things, but also coined the term adaptogens and basically kind of theorized that there are substances that you can put into your body that will increase your resistance to stress, like— any, any sort of, and stress being anything that kind of upsets the homeostasis, the balance of your body. Okay. Whether that be physical, emotional, medical, any kind of stress. Idea being that these will help you adapt to your situation. To that stress and maintain yeah. that homeostasis inside your body. Um, and this, like, his, his initial work was sort of, like, theoretical. And, like, there were a couple substances, like a specific kind of... Um, root that he focused on initially like that might do this Mm -hmm. uh but generally speaking it wasn't it it was some of his um proto like protégés some of the people who followed in his footsteps who like carried on this work and really got us to where we understand adaptogens today um the problem with all of this is that no one has ever really proven (laughs) that these things exist or how they they were exist well, I mean, I think it's it's all very it's all based on like any usage of them is based on um, anecdotal just people using it, like folk use basically. Um, people, it's it they all fall into the class of alternative medicines, supplements, herbal medicines. Nothing that because there's nothing that we've been able to like do in a lab that shows exactly like what do you mean it helped your body adapt to stress? Mm-hmm. What what does that mean? That we don't know. There, there is no, like, how does it function? There's no evidence for any of that. There are, there are decades of people using, because the herbs that they're using, by the way, I should say that even though this term adaptogen and this concept of adaptogen is from the 40s, the herbs that they claim to be adaptogen, adaptogens are from traditional Chinese medicine, you know, are from Ayurvedic medicine, are from ancient medical traditions that have been using these herbs for a very long time. And so you have lots of this sort of like, it's what we would call like folk use. Like we know people use it. We know they claim these benefits. We don't have studies. We have no idea why they would do these things. But people say ashwagandha is an adaptogen and they like it. So they use it and it's not a medicine. It's a supplement. Got it. But that's like in terms of what they're supposed to do or what they are, I, I don't think we have no hard science that says any of that is real. <laughs> so you the jury's out on that one. No, I would say that at this point, nobody's done a study that proves to me that an adaptogen is real 
and can do what they say so it can do. Fence. You're on the fence. No. <laughs> so you're no. kind of I mean, the product, undecided. I'm trying to be so vague. The product that I consumed was fine. But it had the caffeine, and that's what I was looking for. It did the job. Uh, so thank you, caffeine. Yeah, uh, still still <laughs> a stunner. After all these years, still getting the job done. No studies, no more studies needed on caffeine. Um, it's all good. By the way, I should, I should always know with these sorts of herbal things, some of them can definitely interact with your medications that you might already be on if you are on one. Some of them uh, can cause problems for people with various underlying illnesses or chronic diseases. So it, yeah, but if I mean, you're you can't going, make an omelet without breaking fingers, folks. <laughs> I would never, I would never recommend starting any of these things, like in instead of seeking, you know, traditional medicine or instead or without the consent and advice and opinion and whatever of your medical Sp- professional. Spoken like a true allopath. Uh, hi, I know of and agree with Sydney's aversion to um, scatological topics, but how are C. diff spores so resistant to most sanitation efforts, sanitization efforts? What makes C. diff? When, I'm a professional talker. Did you know that? <laughs> what makes C. diff one of the most difficult diseases to clean up in hospitals and such? So C. diff, do you know what that stands for? C. Z. difference. No, Clostridium difficile. We'll Clostridium difficile? No. And you had a little accent there. At the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, this is an infection that you can get. And basically it's an overgrowth of a bacteria that can exist in your colon. But then when um, other bacteria that keep it in balance get wiped out, um, usually by like antibiotics, okay. then it can grow like wild. And then you get terrible diarrhea and it can make you very sick i mean it's a big deal it's a big deal infection it can make people very sick it can unfortunately be fatal um the thing about clostridium difficile is that it's a spore forming organism and it is very difficult to kill these spores uh one with like alcohol-based hand sanitizer so one thing that you have to do in the hospital when you're caring for someone who has c diff is actually wash your hands with soap and water every time you've taking care of them as opposed to using the hand sanitizer um, because you are, interestingly, you're physically removing the spores from your hands if they're on there with the soap and water. Does that make sense? Like you're Mm -hmm. not killing them. You're washing them off, quite literally washing them off. Um, Not because it's of the spore, just because of the, you know, characteristics intrinsic to the organism. It's also really hard to kill with antibiotics. Hmm. There are very few antibiotics that treat C. diff infections and even the ones that like even since I've started practicing, the first-line drug of choice that we used to use is no longer the first-line drug because of so much resistance to it, oh, even in just the time I've been practicing. We're actually finding more and more that maybe when someone has this infection, instead of trying to kill the C. diff with an antibiotic to treat the infection, we should put back in them the good bacteria that will basically outcompete the C. diff. So repopulate their colon with the bacteria they need via fecal transplant. Yes. yes. Now we're which talking we've, about We've talked transplant. about on the show before. And but we're talking about again. I, which is like one of the few things I think we can, we all know from this show and from the last couple of years, that one of the few things I feel good about like my prognostication is I have been like screaming for fecal transplants in our hospital for so long. And I was right. <laughs> And they work better than antibiotics in this one case. But that's the story with C. diff. Wash your hands with soap and water. Um, fecal transplants rule. 
Yeah, share and share alike. Everybody, right? It's taking stool from someone else and putting it. We did a whole thing on on this, on like the a Bristol do, stool I do, chart. I do, I do, a dookie loan. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a, a loan. A like, do, you don't want it back. A dookie donation. Yeah, exactly. You exactly. You don't want it back. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick break. I have more questions for you, Sydney. I will not, I will not be stopped. But we are going to take a quick break right now. And head to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although... There will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes, you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week, I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. We're going to get this truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or clean up. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the, the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McQuarrie fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McElroy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Congratulations, you've won a ticket to attend an exclusive opportunity in a relaxing environment with two lovers. (laughs) Wow. Well, this sounds like a sort of proposition of sorts, but really it's an ad for our podcast. (laughs) Wonderful. 
It's a show we do here on Maximum Fun where we talk about things that we like and things that we're into. I'm Rachel McElroy, and you just heard Griffin McElroy, and we are excited for you to join us as we talk about movies and music and books. Things like sneezing or the idea of rain. (laughs) (laughs) Can you get news or information you can use? Absolutely you cannot, because we're here to talk to you about pumpernickel bread. You can find new episodes on Wednesdays. So catch, catch the wave! Should I get my third COVID shot? That's a question from a listener. Uh, not from me. I've already had a bunch of the things. <laughs> Way more than three. Well, no. <laughs> like, I'm all for vaccines, says question asker. But I feel bad taking a third one when there are people all over the world who are desperate for their first one. So, okay. I think that this is a good a good moment to talk a little bit about um, an additional COVID vaccine versus a booster I have no idea that there is a difference. I'm yes, shocked. There is a difference because a lot of people keep talking about their boosters and what what the CDC is already recommending, the thing that is already happening. The CDC put out these guidelines and this is what has been recommended is that people who are moderately to severely immunocompromised need a third dose of the vaccine. And it, so it's not a booster, it's a third dose. They got dose one, they got dose two, now they need dose three. Whereas, because I am not moderately to severely immunocompromised, I got dose one, I got dose two, I don't need dose three. The difference is that a third dose is aimed at someone whose body may not have produced the predicted response to the vaccine. Does that make sense? Like, when we give you the vaccine, we expect your body to make this big immune response, right? Well, for people with immunocompromised, we know they might not. Um, and so this is an extra dose to make that happen. A booster is for someone whose body did produce the expected immune response, but we feel it has waned over time. Okay. We have evidence that over time that has begun to decrease and we want to boost it back up like a tetanus booster. Sure. You get your Tdap 10 years later, or if you have a baby, we tell you to get another one because your immune response has waned over time. There are many vaccines like that. The only people who are receiving a third dose right now are, and you can look this up. I won't read the whole list, but on the CDC website, cdc.gov, you can look up who needs an additional COVID-19 vaccine, not a booster, an additional vaccine. And there's a list of very specific people, like people who are receiving cancer treatment, people with advanced or untreated HIV infection, uh, people with high dose uh, corticosteroids. Like there, there are others, but you can look up that specific list Um, The pharmacy, if you go to a pharmacy to get your additional vaccine, if you think you qualify, they will have the list there for you to look over. You have Mm -hmm. to check one of those boxes to receive a dose or the health department or wherever. You can talk to your healthcare providers, but um, these are the only people who should be getting a third dose right now. Okay. Now, the Department of Health and Human Services, the HHS, introduced a plan to give a booster vaccine to everyone who is eight months out. They have not started implementing said plan. But that was the big buzz, right? We all heard that after you're eight months out, you need a booster. Right. That has not been implemented yet. So what, but what if you are eight months out? <laughs> that we have not what started. What if you're from your shot? I think what we have is the HHS saying that we need to do this and the FDA and the CDC and the World Health Organization and a lot of other groups are saying, wait, 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 hold, hold up, mm-hmm. hold up, hold up. 
Um, so I think we have a little bit of dissonance between various organizations. Got it. Okay. So currently, they're not giving boosters. They are saying that they will start giving. And I mean, I think it was supposed to happen like this week. That is what they initially proposed. As early as this week, they will start giving boosters to people who are eight months out. And even then, there was supposed to be some sort of like system of who gets it first. Like, because I've heard all of this about like, well, high risk people or older people, or should it be healthcare workers? Or I think there's still a lot of questioning about that. Because the other issue to all this is the the big question we keep asking, if we know that two doses of the mRNA vaccines, and to further that point, one dose of the J&J, are still extremely effective at preventing severe illness, hospitalization, and death from COVID-19, why are we giving booster doses to people who already are pretty well protected instead of sending all those vaccines to all the places in the world where people haven't gotten one or two doses. Does yeah. that because yeah. by by extending vaccines to as many people as possible globally, we will decrease the rate of new variants being created and yeah. it benefits all humankind. So there's this whole that will use them better that will maybe use them, well like, have a better adoption rate. You want to flush them in down the toilet. There's a there's a lot of that. I think that medical ethics is really being strained here because there's a lot of that debate. But then at the same time, the U.S. is not. They're not going to send all these vaccines anywhere else. They're just going to be here. And so then you have people going, well, if it's going to be there anyway, like I'd rather them send it somewhere else. But if they're not going to, why wouldn't I not just go get it? I know, they I know, it's just, sticky. But right just, now, if you if you think you need an additional COVID nineteen vaccine because you are moderately to severely immunocompromised, please go inquire and seek that out. Currently, we're not giving booster vaccines, but if you are eight months out, pay attention because they might announce that soon. They should just put you in charge of all that stuff, Sid. All those decisions. I, well, there's a lot of health equity issues that aren't being answered, Justin. Well, yeah, but. If you were in charge, I feel like reasonably sure that I'd be covered at least. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, that, which is kind of everyone's top priority, I think. <laughs> uh, when I got my HPV vaccine very shortly after it was approved, my doctor did the first two shots in my butt. <laughs> <laughs> I has capitalized, B-U-T-T, all, uh -huh. not just capitalized, full, all four I like that. that is but. The, but. And the third in my arm. When and how do doctors make decisions about where shots should go? Was my doctor just nuts or particularly vindictive? That's from I. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not entirely certain why you got two, two, the first two, two shots. Two, I'm in the, to, two in the butt, uh, one okay, in the arm. So. <laughs> just say it. Two in the butt, I was one in the not arm. To say that, I, I'm not entirely certain what shocker. that what that thought process was. There was nothing wrong with it. Let me say that, like nothing, no harm has been done. Um, the really the only decision you have to make when you're giving a vaccine, and it's it's not a decision you have to make. We know that different um, medications, vaccines, drugs, anything that we are injecting with a needle into the body. It goes a different route. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but some are intramuscular, so they go in a muscle. Some are subcutaneous. They go, you know, in the subcutaneous levels of the skin. Some are intradermal, 
like um, if you've gotten a PPD, the TB test, mm -hmm. and they make that little bubble right under your skin. It's very surface. Um, and then you have uh, things that go intravenous, right? An IV. Uh, they actually have to find a vein to inject it. Um, the important thing is that you're putting the medication where it belongs in terms of those choices. Which muscle you choose, and this is what we're talking about here, like vaccines are typically IM, intramuscular injections. Which muscle is not terribly important? Um, the, the one on your arm, obviously your deltoid, that's where we usually pick because it's easily accessible. For most people, it's large enough that you can comfortably receive a vaccine there. Um, for children, we often will give it in the thigh. Mm. And that's really just because it's a bigger muscle at that age. Mm. Kids' arms are typically very small. Once they get larger, it's easier to give them a shot in the arm, and so we can do the shot in the arm. Um, but it's really just about accessibility and muscle size, and there's really not much more to it in, in that case. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing the gluteal shots. Um <laughs> But I'd say I'd say usually we just go with the arm because like it's right there. <laughs> so there you have it. But they're both fine. Your vaccines worked, and thank you for getting your HPV vaccines. Another vaccine that not enough that there's a lot of misinformation about, and not enough people realize how incredibly beneficial it is to mankind, humankind, oh, get, all kind. I will get it tomorrow. Everyone tells me it's sugary drinks that give the worst hangovers. I wanted to know if there is any evidence. To back that up, since it just sounds like anecdote to me, Anton. I This was interesting because I'd always heard that too, and I assumed that it was true. There's no evidence for this. Really? No evidence that the sugar is the problem. The argument has been made that because your liver has to process both the sugar and the alcohol, that like basically you're taxing it even more, and that's why the hangover is worse. Um, this isn't true. Your liver's really good. At processing sugar, and it would not overtax your liver to process sugar at the same time as alcohol. If you're noticing this effect, it may be because, I don't know, a lot of sugar just kind of makes me feel nauseous, so yeah. maybe that. Um, it may just be that sugary drinks taste really good and sometimes disguise the flavor of alcohol so well that you drink more. Drink more. That you, like, that's very possible. Mm -hmm, or drink faster than you intend to. Um, but but the sugar itself should not affect your hangover. It's all about the congeners. It's all about the congeners. The extra products of fermentation that happen when you're you know, making whatever you're making, wine, beer, liquor, whatever it is, the more congeners, the more extra stuff in there so I should just stick with just stick with vodka, folks. That's what I keep saying. <laughs> that is theoretically why vodka would would produce less of a hangover. You know what? Or, or any sort of clear. It also feels like you're drinking like not like like you should be covered on hydration, right? Because it feels like you're drinking something that's like oh, this is kind of like a drink, like the regular, like something frozen, yeah, especially exactly. a frozen like, sugary oh, drink. I feel very ice refreshed. In there. Yeah. I don't need any water. No, but the the congeners are the problem. Um, and then uh, that also is why well liquor is no more likely to cause a hangover than the fancy stuff. I think there's a band called the Conjurers. It's a good name. It's a good name. It's a good name. I donated a lot of blood platelets and uh, WBCs to the American Red Cross. Flex. They said that, not me. Oh, but I would have said it had they mm -hmm. not. Sure. Years ago, they told me my platelets are very valuable because my blood type and the fact that I have what's known as 
baby's blood. A crime in many states. (laughs) (laughs) Possession of baby's blood. Uh, It means I'm CMV. They said roughly negative. CMV negative. CMV negative. Sorry. They said that roughly half the population has this disease slash condition but aren't aware of it. What are some other diseases and illnesses that many people have but aren't aware of? Sorry to people with anxiety. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to start listing because as you, as you very politely mentioned, I don't want to start listing a bunch of diseases like, hey, here's some, there are many uh, genetic conditions and things sort of like, I, I mean, I think the popularity of things like 23andMe has really brought this to the forefront, What, right? Like you can figure out that you're predisposed to a number of things if you want to. Yeah. Um, and some of that information might be helpful for lifestyle changes and others might just stress you out uh, <laughs> because there's not much you can do about that. Um, but I do think this point is really interesting about the about blood products and CMV. So CMV or cytomegalovirus is an incredibly common viral infection. Um, it's most similar to, have you heard of mono EBV, Epstein-Barr virus? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's very similar to that. It's not the same virus, obviously, but it's it's in that same sort of, you know, kind of world of viruses. Um, the thing about CMV is many people get it and don't ever know they had it. And uh, in fact, by the time we're 40, uh, 85% of people ha- have CMV, have had CMV. Now, here's the thing. For the most part, having CMV and then now you've recovered from it and us finding the antibodies in your blood is not a big deal when it comes to donating blood, right? Mm-hmm. Because for most people, there's nothing dangerous about that. But for specific people to receive blood, we have to be very careful about what sorts of infections and things they might have, what they might have antibodies for. So for babies, baby's blood, it is important that you have a donor who has not had CMV. And those are difficult to find. So when you find a donor who has not had CMV, that's a very precious donor that you have have located. Um, in addition, if you are O negative and you've never had CMV, you're just like, I mean, like all the Red Crosses are going to want to get at you. They're mm-hmm. all trading your number around like, hey, 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 <laughs> give me some of that sweet baby's blood. Um, so that is why that is that is such a an important thing it's not just babies there are other people who have to because of their again immunocompromised and things like that you have to be very particular about what kind of blood donation they receive um but that makes that blood extremely precious that you can donate good reminder to you know if you're able to and if it's safe for you or whatever to to donate uh it's hard it's been hard to come by from what i've been reading absolutely so. it's really important to and and you know the thing is i just to sort of answer the question There are lots of viruses that we get in our lives and clear, and we could find evidence of later on, but don't necessarily impact us long term. And that that is what this is in this case. Um, So donate blood if you can. Okay. A couple more quickies. Why does the discharge snot turn a bright green color when you have a sinus infection? So I, I wanted to include this question because I think it's important to know that just because your snot is green or yellow doesn't mean you have an infection. And just because your snot isn't green or yellow doesn't mean you don't have an infection. <laughs> Does that mean there were yeah. a lot of negatives in there? Um, snot color is largely related to how concentrated it is. Mm. So the thicker it is, the less um, the less hydrated you are. Yeah. 
the darker it tends to be. Now, that being said, certainly if there are bacteria present, they can change the color of snot. So green snot usually means something is up and you and it might not be a bacteria, it might just be a virus, you know, in, which in the year 2021, I can't believe I said just a virus. <laughs> but it might be a virus. It doesn't necessarily mean, mean you need antibiotics. Got it. Um, but also if there's a lot of white blood cells, then it could look like pus, purulent is what we would say. So like a whiter, creamier discharge and not necessarily green. And that could still mean infection. Generally speaking, it's related to how concentrated the snot is and less what's in there. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly if your snot is changing color, you should ask somebody <laughs> about it because um, you could have a sinus infection. I would suggest Sydney. That is who I would ask. Uh I have this bump on my back. It doesn't hurt and doesn't seem to do anything. Except, what would you want to just do? <laughs> well, it'd get bigger, or smaller, it, go it, away. It does predict the wet rain. <laughs> if I can feel it swelling, except once in a while, if I squeeze it, white stuff comes out. It's roughly the consistency of old. I actually can't do this one. Okay, so this person has a thing. I don't want to read the it's rest. It's roughly of this. the consistency of old, almost dry toothpaste and smells bad. What the heck is this stuff? I'm done? done. I'm done. Okay, I'm good. done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love gross stuff. It's what's so much. We did. We I can't. It for so many years. 2013. I can't. Hundreds of episodes. This one's too much. I just included it because I love gross stuff. I I hope. Um, Except you're, poop. You're so like. I talked about fecal so transplant. I know, but you don't like it. Right, like there's a way, and you talk about it in a very clinical way. You act all like, oh, I just love gross stuff. Oh, except for the things that you find gross. I don't Who like doesn't to, bother me? No, this, okay. this I find poop, very problematic. Poop doesn't bother me. I don't like to talk about my own bodily functions. And not everyone around me has that same sort of stance. Okay. I don't want to discuss what I am or am not doing and in what or frequency. Have ever, or have ever done. Or have ever done. <laughs> anyway, I... I hope, dear listener, I hope you know I cannot diagnose the, the bump on your back from an email, but... Don't we have um, a literal... <laughs> if it does a moment of distraction from that weird growth, right? <laughs> if it does concern you, please get it checked out. But I did think it was... Um, I like gross stuff, one. And uh, not that you're gross. The, just the, the consistency of old, almost dry toothpaste is kind of a gross description. Um, but I, my, my thought is this is probably some kind of cyst, probably an epidermoid or sebaceous cyst. And a lot of people assume that, like, the stuff that can come out of your body, like there's pus, right? You got an right. infection, white, creamy pus stuff comes out. Come on. You've got a cyst that maybe has just fluid. Like, people have usually seen, like, just, like, something that's just clear fluid, serous fluid, we would call it, or serosanguinous if there's blood in there. Um there's also, you can also get keratin that's in your skin, nails, hair. Keratin can build up and get like stuck inside, <laughs> underneath, like in your skin and not be able to come out like it's right. supposed to. Like the sopranos horns are made out of, right? And yeah, and form and form these cysts where you've got like a plug of this keratin material underneath it. And it won't look like like it'll it might be white like you said but you look at it and you think well that doesn't look like pus like i'm used to i know what pus is supposed to look like this doesn't look like pus what in the world is this stuff and it's probably a buildup of this keratin 
material and there can be some proteinaceous stuff in there mm-hmm. too. But it can be like thicker or waxier or white, um, not necessarily creamy. <laughs> mm-hmm. There might be infection there too, which you usually know because like it hurts, it's red, it's hot. And then pus comes out. Um, If this is something that bothers you, you should certainly get like a medical professional to check it out because usually when it comes to these cysts, they're not as easy as squeezing and popping, which is just too bad because that would be great. I love squeezing and popping things. Um, Usually you have to, um, well, always, if you want to get rid of it, you have to remove the whole cyst, like the whole body of the cyst. And you know what this is all about because you had one in your head. Yeah. Yeah. You had one removed from your head. I have to talk about that right this second, but sure. It was like like a little water balloon. Okay. But full of this keratin-like, you know, white So what Sydney's saying is go to a doctor. Yeah, if it's, I mean, if If it's it's just there and it's not bothering you, I would not, and I will say this, I wouldn't continue to squeeze and pick at it because our hands are dirty, not just yours, mine too. All of our hands are dirty. And especially under our nails. And if we start picking and squeezing at things, we're very likely to introduce bacteria, even if they weren't there already. So if it's bothering you, have a doctor check it out. If it's changing, have a doctor check it out. Don't pick at it. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It's called Sawbones. Hey, if you want to see us in a live virtual setting, bit.ly forward slash MBMBAM virtual. It's going to be Friday at 9 p.m. This Friday, September 24th at 9 p.m., uh, tickets are $10. You'll be able to watch it on VOD for like uh, two weeks after that, I believe. But uh, that address again, bit.ly forward slash MBMBAM virtual. We're going to try to do some in-person live shows this year, but it didn't pan out because the ongoing unpleasantness. So if you want to support us, then that is a great way of doing it and have some fun too. There will also be a My Brother, My Brother and Me live show, but who cares? Um, uh, thanks to the taxpayers for use of the song medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you. For listening, we sure appreciate it. That's gonna do it for us. Until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. All right. Yeah. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.